0: Good morning, everybody. Wonderful to be with you today, to worship with you, to start off this Christmas season with you, and to open the Bible together. I love the text that we're talking about today, so let's pray together, ask for the Lord's help, and then I'll ask you to open your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we consider the words to these songs that we've been singing, as we look at your greatness, as we consider the wonder and the majesty of your son Jesus as he came to earth in humble form, as we consider our lives and how they are radically transformed by you, we pause again and again and again thinking about these things in worship. God, you are most worthy to be praised. We pray today for the coming moments that you would continue to speak to us through your scriptures, that you continue to transform us, that you would continue to recalibrate our thoughts and our actions. Lord, be pleased by your people, we ask. Be pleased enough to work through us by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I have seen the future. I have. I have seen the future. And to some of you that might sound a little bit scary, but let me tell you, the future is filled with opportunity. When I say I've seen the future, I don't mean or I'm not talking about seeing the future and a Marty McFly getting in the DeLorean type of dynamic. Let me explain what I mean. When I say I've seen the future, I have lived in different environments in which the cultural and religious thrust has not yet fully reached us here in eastern Ohio, but by all indications, they're coming. Sociologists and cultural analysts tend to agree that common cultural trends in our society, whether that be music or fashion or philosophy or art, and even religious beliefs very often originate in Western Europe before they make their way to the United States. And when they do, they're first adopted on the coasts and in the big cities and in the universities. And then slowly but surely, they make their way toward middle America. And in this sense, I've seen the future. And for Christians... In some ways, the future might look scary to you. But let me tell you, it's filled with spiritual opportunity. The trends most pertinent to our conversation in the book of Acts and certainly for today are with regard to how the Christian faith is viewed as advancing or retreating in the midst of Western society. We all know that America is becoming increasingly secularized. We know that conversations about God are being pushed to the fringes of the public square. And for many of us, we cry foul at that. It's a scary dynamic to realize that what once was a defining feature of this nation is continually being pressed out to the fringes. But let me tell you, in that dynamic, there's a lot of spiritual opportunity. Today, in England, it's estimated that 1 to 2% of the population went to church. Just 1 to 2%. The culture is one of spiritual confusion. The society itself is pluralistic in its nature. There are many, many people who would assert a belief that there is no God. There are many, many people who would assert a belief in many gods, and there's a bunch of people in between. The five states of New England on this side of the pond are now targeted as a mission field by a number of mission-sending agencies, both in our country and abroad. And if you live in Boston today and you strike up a conversation, it would not be completely surprising to you to meet somebody that knows absolutely nothing about Jesus and who he is or what he's done. A generation or two now has passed down through the ages where Talk about God and exposure to his teachings have been slim. In a very real way, God is now becoming unknown in parts of the Western world. And although the force, the full force of this cultural shift has not yet reached us here, in Ohio, as we drive around and we see a variety of churches of different flavors, we know and we feel in some ways that it's coming. You know that as you talk to people, and if you get past that initial shell of what they do and what they like, if you really get down to the core, you know the conversations about God will yield a variety of things. And that God, even in our community, is becoming increasingly unknown. So how do we make an unknown God known? That is the question of our text this morning. It's a question for us as a church because as we continue in this series called The Next Act and we look at these different ideas of the type of church that we want to be again and again and again. We hear you say, and I would say the same, we want to be a church that impacts this community. We don't want to be just a group of people who are insular in its nature. We want to have outreach, impact, all beyond these four or 15 walls. To do that, we have to reckon with the fact and prepare for the fact that God's becoming increasingly unknown. How do we make an unknown God Known again. I want to ask you to grab your Bible, open with me to Acts chapter 17. I know a number of you are already there. Today, we see this text, one example of the Apostle Paul in a culture in Athens where God is confused, he's manipulated, he's marginalized, and he's even unknown. And it points us toward some of these realities that we're already beginning to experience. And certainly with no doubt will experience in greater effect in months and years to come. Acts chapter 17, starting at verse 16, it says this. It says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and in the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know this new teaching that you are presenting For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all of the Athenians and their foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath. And everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard this of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed among whom were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. In a time in our culture where God is very often, culturally speaking, manipulated, confused, marginalized, or even becoming increasingly unknown, how do we make an unknown God known? In this text, we see Paul engaging in the society of Athens, and I think what he says is very significant, and I think the way he says it is also very significant. So let's make a couple observations together. First, we see right away in verse 16 that as he entered, he was greatly distressed to see that this city was full of idols, Let me try to paint the picture for you of ancient Athens. Athens was a city of marvel in the Roman Empire. And by the time of Paul, it was past its peak. And yet, it was still a cultural center for art and for philosophy. As one scholar states, there were innumerable temples, shrines, statues, and altars. In the Parthenon stood a huge golden ivory statue of Athena whose gleaming spear point was visible 40 miles away. Elsewhere, there were images of Apollo, the city's patron of Jupiter, of Venus, Mercury, Bacchus, Neptune, and Diana. The whole Greek pantheon was there. All the gods of Olympus. And they were beautiful. They were not only made of stone and brass, but they were made of gold and silver and ivory and marble. And they had been elegantly fashioned by the finest Greek sculptors. And so the Apostle Paul, going through the city, seeing, beholding the beauty and the wonder of the art of the statues, of the temples, finds himself distressed. Or as our text says, his spirit was provoked within him. Why was he provoked? The reason why is because when you understand who God is, when you encounter him personally, and then you see the ways that he's distorted, manipulated, or minimized, there's something that happens for those who know him. I think of the words said to Job in, verse, in chapter 37. Listen to this, Job. Stop and consider God's wonders. Do you know how God controls the clouds and makes his lightning flash? Do you know how the clouds hang poised? Those wonders of him who have has perfect knowledge. Or Psalm 45, 145 from the psalmist who knows him, he says, great is the Lord. Abundant power. His understanding is beyond measure. The apostle Paul has experienced the Lord and his greatness and he has glimpses of his glory. And as he wanders around and sees these false gods raised up, within him is created a holy dissatisfaction, a holy discontent. His spirit is provoked. Gospel ministry begins when God's people experience a holy dissatisfaction with the fact that God is minimized, manipulated, or unknown. I think of the words in Jeremiah. Jeremiah was one of those prophets that had a message that God's people Israel didn't want to hear. He knew that if he spoke that message, that he would himself be slandered. And yet he couldn't help it because he knew God. and He knew who God was. And so he writes in Jeremiah chapter 20 verse 9, If I say that I will not mention him or if I speak his name no more, there in my heart, as it were, is a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I'm weary with holding it in. And indeed, I cannot. When God is not recognized in his rightful place, holy discontent occurs in the lives of Christians. And I wonder, I wonder for you, when you see God manipulated, marginalized, cast to the side. Do you experience that holy discontent? Or is your response one of apathy? I think the answer to that question probably tells us something about our spiritual condition. Probably tells us something about how well we know him. And it definitely points to why we do or why we do not share our faith with the people that we know. Christians become distressed and they can't help but speak out. But how do you speak out? How do you engage in a culture that minimizes God? Well, we see here that Paul engages these people at the place of their foundation. We see it in verse 17 and again in verse 22. Verse 17 says he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and then he went to the marketplace with those who happened to be there. He reasoned with them. The word here in the original language is the word for conversing or dialoguing. He prays for opportunities to present his faith. He looks for opportunities to dialogue. God meets him in those opportunities. Notice what he doesn't do. What he doesn't do is what we are so often tempted to do. He doesn't go in there with both guns ablazing and proclaim judgment on everybody from the get-go. He dialogues with them. He meets them at their place of foundation. And that's what we see generally as the pattern throughout the New Testament for both Jesus and the apostles. Now there are certain times and places when the proclamation of harsh judgment immediately is called for. But here he meets them where they are. For some they had a religious foundation, he met them in the synagogue. For others, he follows this pattern of teaching and he meets them in the marketplace. And among them, the text says that there's Epicurean Stoic philosophers. And at the risk of going down a little rabbit trail, I think this is important for us to recognize and, and interesting in certain ways. Who are these people that he's talking to? The Epicurean philosophers are considered to be the philosophers of the garden, they were called. They considered the gods to be so remote and to take no interest in humans or human affairs. Life happens randomly randomly. They thought. There's no judgment, and so humans can pursue pleasure of any kind, especially the serene enjoyment of life, detached from pain, the wrong types of passion, and fear. Conversely, there's a bunch of Stoic philosophers. These people acknowledge a supreme God within a pantheon, so there's one God that's greater than all the rest, and the world was determined by fate. Human beings must pursue their duty. And as such, they're supposed to live in harmony with reason. They're supposed to live in harmony with the nation and their neighbors. They're supposed to develop a level of self-sufficiency no matter how painful that might be. Here's the summary. The Epicureans emphasized chance, pleasure, and escape. The Stoics believed in suffering, submission, and some form of fatalism. Chance, pleasure, and escape, suffering, and submission, and fatalism. Does that sound like a culture that you might be familiar with? Of course it does. Because these philosophies never go away. They're recast, they're tweaked, they're renamed, they creep in in different types of ways. But if you were to meet people and to begin to talk to them about how they go about their life or what they think even the meanings of lives are, you would find people all throughout our society that are pursuing pleasure at almost every cost and escaping pain at almost every cost. And you would find others that go through life with some sort of vague, guilt-ridden existence in which they're just supposed to do whatever the next right thing is, No matter who it's to or why they're supposed to do it. You'll find both of those mindsets right here in the middle of Ohio. And Paul dialogues with them. He goes to them. He doesn't set up shop and expect them to come to him. He does this in the synagogue and then he goes to the marketplace. And I think it's interesting that he goes to the marketplace. The marketplace in that context is sort of the casual place where people would gather And they would hang out. And he goes and he talks about the gospel. It reminds us that at every point in history, there's great need for Christians to go to the places where people are, where people hang out, and gossip the gospel, whether that's at the gym or the coffee shop or the golf course or the pub or the fishing boat. Are you doing that? Are you gossiping the gospel? You know, as a pastor, uh, in a number of different contexts now, I often get asked the question, what does your church do for outreach? And the question is laced with the idea that successful churches have huge systems and structures for outreach in place to attract people to them and therefore share the good news about Jesus with them. And those things can be effective, and particularly I think they were very effective maybe at a different course in the history of our culture. But more and more and more, we are seeing that the best type of outreach are Christians who are in the marketplace gossiping the gospel with their friends, with their neighbors, with their co-workers... Talking about the most important things, not letting the conversation stay on that sort of casual level, but to meet people where they are at their foundation. Because our culture is changing so fast, you guys. Why is this important to meet people where they are? I think of a couple years ago, 10 years ago, actually, um, when Amy and I lived in England. I made an acquaintance with a young man who worked for her named Lewis. Amy, at that time, was uh, working at a health club in central London. She had a number of staff for her. And Lewis was a young British man in his 20s. He um, very much represented a cross-section of of English society. You would call him an Epicurean in a sense. He pursued pleasure at almost all costs. And one day, I was down at the gym hanging out, and I was talking to Lewis, and he said, Nick, tell me something. You moved you and your wife all the way over here to study. What are you studying? I said, well, I'm studying theology, Lewis. And he goes, huh. Theology. What's that? I said, well, theology is the study of God. And at that, he'd get a curious look on his face. He kind of stepped back like he'd never thought of God before. I said, the study of God, huh? Are you for or against? Statistics tell us that our culture with regard to an idea of even who God is is changing at rapid pace. In 2007, the cover story of Time Magazine indicated that only half of the adults in the U.S. could name one of the four Gospels. Fewer than half could identify Genesis as the Bible's first book. Late night talk show host Jay Leno, Stephen Colbert, among others, have made sport of Americans' inability to name the Ten Commandments, especially sport among the members of Congress who are debating whether or not they should be posted in public spaces. Multiple surveys reveal that, according to 82% of Americans, the phrase, God helps those who help themselves is a verse in the Bible. It's not, just so we're clear. Some statistics are enough to perplex even people who have been aware of this problem for some time. A Barna poll indicated that 12% of adults believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. Another survey of graduating high school seniors revealed that over 50% thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife, and a considerable number of respondents to one poll indicated that the sermon, of, sermon on the Mount was a sermon that was preached by Billy Graham. And we hear those statistics and we think to ourselves, oh my goodness, we are in trouble. And we chuckle and we laugh. But guys, secularized Americans should not be expected to have a knowledge of the Bible as the nation's civic conversations are continually stripped from all biblical references, American society is becoming a scripture free public space. Confusion and ignorance about the Bible's content should be assumed in post Christian America. And if that's the case, if we sit back and sort of condescendingly say, oh, those foolish people. <laughs> how are they going to ever come to know about the person of Jesus? It's all the more reason to meet them at their foundation and help them grow. And so we see Paul is discussing with them... He's dialoguing with them. They take him to this place called the Areopagus, otherwise known as Mars Hill. This is a place where the leaders of the community would come and engage in discourse. And we see perhaps the most clear distinction of him meeting them at their foundation in verse 23. He says, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Curious. This was an educated society. This was a sophisticated society. This was a society of robust sense of spirituality. And even in that context, there was a recognition that there was something else or someone else out there. And maybe that this person would even be greater. Now I don't think that Paul is simply filling in some gaps here as if they're in a neutral standpoint. I think what he's actually doing is highlighting for them that this God that they claim to be unknown has actually revealed himself again and again and again, and they've been marginalizing him, manipulating him, twisting him to meet their own purposes. You know, regularly, we meet people who seemingly have everything going for them. They have a great job, they have a beautiful and intelligent spouse, they have a wonderful family, 2.4 kids and a dog, no cat, and they have a they have a path forward that they enjoy. And no matter how much they have these things and enjoy these things, there's something missing inside of them because they weren't created for that stuff. As good as it is, they were created for relationship with the one true God. And so he meets them where they're at. He has this holy discontent. He meets them where they're at, at the place of their foundation. And then he refocuses their foundation toward this God. He tells them who God is. He clarifies who God isn't. They're a biblically illiterate society, so he doesn't come in and just begin quoting Bible verses to them. He uses biblical principles. The Holy Spirit uses it. And as a result, he makes God known. He clarifies for them who God is. He tells them God is the one who made heaven and earth, the giver of life and mankind and everything. He's the maker of all nations. He is the maker of boundaries and allotted period of time. And he did all of this to show himself to you. Even though you claim he's unknown, he tells them who God isn't. God doesn't live in temples, he says. God is not like gold or silver or stone or art. And then he tells them maybe one of the most striking things that they could hear a society as spiritual as theirs. He tells them God doesn't need you, you need him. I think back through my own life, I see the ways that I have so often tried to use God for my own purposes. By clarifying who God is and who God isn't, He's actually pointing out to them the ways that we tend to limit Him, the ways we sinfully use him for our own gain, feeling, or purposes. And there's a reminder here for all of us, I think. The reminder is that temptation that we have and that we've tried, I know I have, to shape God into an image that I want him to be in. That I could twist his words to justify my desires or my actions. That I would allow my gaze to be focused in a different direction and trade something infinitely good for something much lesser in value. We all do that. We all do that. And as a result, he doesn't just leave them there. He meets them at their foundation. He refocuses that foundation toward the person of God and then he calls them to repentance verse 29 and 30 look with me verse 29 is the ground of his speech he says all of these things about who god and who god isn't and then he says because you are god's offspring you're living and breathing you are from him don't minimize his greatness nor his importance Because God used to overlook the ways that we did this in certain types of fashion, but he's not doing that anymore. And the reason why we know he's not doing that anymore is because he has revealed his full plan of salvation through the person of Jesus, his son. And this Jesus died for the forgiveness of your sins. He was raised again to conquer that sin, but his resurrection guarantees something. It guarantees that there is a day coming, verse 31, where the world would be judged in righteousness. He calls them to repent. To change, to turn from one way to another. And this is so important for us to hear, Christians, and so important for us to remember. Remember. Because in American Christianity right now, there's a lot of calls to accept God in some vague sort of way. To accept Jesus into your heart in some kind of squishy notion. But part of right belief, as we talked about a few weeks ago in Acts chapter 9, is also repentance. They're they're tied together in a type of way. And that's offensive to people. You mean that I actually have to turn away from something and toward something else? That means that I'm doing something wrong. Yes, you are. <laughs> and God used to overlook this in certain types of ways, but he doesn't overlook it anymore. We know that. And I don't know about you, but I am so thankful that God is magnificent in nature, that he's holy and just, that he's completely other, that he is so outside of our experience that he wouldn't allow me simply to tack him on as an extra appendage in my spiritual existence. That I could just believe in him and continue to do a variety of things. That I could just believe in him and try to hold that belief with completely contrary beliefs in other gods in a pantheon, if you will. I'm so thankful that God, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, by which all reality has to be shaped from and reckoned to, demands something of us to turn toward him. I'm so thankful I just can't tack him on, that he's that much of a sissy God. But that His majesty is displayed in repentance. Meet people where they are and lead them to the Savior. Meet people where they are and lead them to the Savior. It starts with holy discontent. You meet them at their foundation. You refocus their foundation. You tell them about the Lord Jesus. You call them to the right type of repentance. Now, we all know that a call to repentance could sound offensive. It can sound as soft as I'm saying it to you right now, or it can sound as harsh as I'm saying it to you right now. But meet people where they are Call them to the Lord Jesus and lead them there. And the result that we see in this text is that some people mocked him. And some people came to faith. And that's what we can expect. My wife Amy tells a story, and I'll conclude with this. My wife Amy tells a story of a time when she was in high school in which she didn't know how she was going to get home. Let me elaborate. Amy grew up in northwest Montana, just outside of Glacier National Park. It is one of the ugliest places on earth that you'll ever see. I'm just kidding. It was a wonderful place to grow up for her. And one of the features of northwest Montana is the tremendous amount of snow that they get. Massive storms come through the mountains and just dump buckets of snow, sometimes two, three, even four inches an hour for multiple hours at a time. On one such night, Amy was at a friend's house, doing what high school girls do, I don't know. Storm rolled in, wind was whipping, snow was dumping, and it was whiteout conditions. And she did not know how she was going to get home. So she called her dad and said, Dad, what should I do? And he said to her, I have an idea. Just wait there, and I'll be there as soon as I can. Now, the ride home was treacherous, not just because of the whiteout conditions, but because of the 15 or 20-mile drive that it was made its way through the canyon And on the canyon was a mountain wall on one side and the Flathead River on the other side of the road. To miss the road was treacherous. And so Todd, my father-in-law, got into his pickup truck, drove the 15 or 20 miles through the canyon, arrived to the place where Amy was, and said, get in your car and follow me. And through white-out conditions, she stayed in the tracks that he had plowed through. And in the distance, she could see those little red taillights through the blinding snow. And in a very practical way, he went and got her. He met her where she was at. And he led her home. That's a picture of Christian witness in Acts chapter 17. Meet people where they're at and lead them to the Savior. Let's pray. Lord God, as we read in Acts chapter 17 this speech by the Apostle Paul and we see that you are the one in which we live and move and have our being that we are indeed your offspring, that you are the one who created all things, that you are the Lord of heaven and earth. And yet so often we fear the cultural dynamics that are forming around us. And as our society changes and seemingly you become unknown in certain pockets and sections, God, we desire to make you known, but we confess that so often we don't have that holy dissatisfaction. I pray, Lord, that you would brew that deep within the people of Old North. As we think about the type of church that we want to be and the type of church we want to become, a church that meets this community where they're at, that shows them the love of Jesus, that proclaims to them the coming kingdom, that's real and tangible and flesh-on-flesh in relationships. Lord, we pray that you would do that in this church, that you would grow this people in their ability and their willingness to share you, to meet people where they are, and to lead them to you. We need your help, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.